And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host, Mr. Luke Ciaconetti. I would like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. And uh, we've got a very good show today. Uh, I want to thank everyone for listening to our previous episode where we took a look at All Monsters Attack, also known, of course, as Godzilla's Revenge here in the States. We also took a look at uh, three issues of Iron Man, number 194, 195, and 196, finishing up the short storyline involving Marvel Godzilla under a different name and Dr. Demonicus over in Shellhead's title. This time out, we've got Rago, King of the Sea Monsters, of course originally known as Deep Sea Monster Rago, uh, independent daikaiju film recently getting a wide uh, media release here in the United States. And we're also taking a look at Marvel Comics' The Thing, number 31, continuing our look at uh, later appearances of some of the Marvel Godzilla characters. But before we get into that, we've got a little bit of news. So Playmates, Godzilla, and Kong toys are starting to hit Walmart. Uh, these are kind of an unusual case. Now, uh, they appear to be a mix of new molds by Playmates, along with some of the previous Bandai American molds, all released on uh, Playmates boxes. And these boxes themselves, they're designed to look as close as possible to the Bandai boxes. Uh, they are slightly different. If you remember your uh, Bandai vinyl boxes here in the States, the as you're looking at the box, the right corner is kind of jagged. Uh, these boxes are straight, squared off corners. That's kind of the big one. Now, the line includes new figures for Space Godzilla, Destoroya, Final Wars Gigan, Shin Godzilla, and Kong from Skull Island. And as suggested by their packaging, they are, in fact, in scale with the Bandai vinyls. Now, I've also seen King Ghidorah and Mechagodzilla, also the Bandai versions of these uh, figures, uh, also released on these same Playmates uh, boxes. Uh, the quality, unfortunately, of these Playmates figures seems to be a lot lower. The, uh, the material doesn't seem to be as nice. And the paint, the paint applications do not look nearly as nice as their Bandai counterparts. They end up looking a lot cheaper than the Bandai ones. Uh, but I can say this, my brother Jason was able to improve Space Godzilla with just a few uh, touch-ups. Now, admittedly, Jay is a highly skilled modeler, but uh, this was, he said it was like, you know, like two minutes and he was able to make Space Godzilla look better. So maybe there's hope for the rest of them. Now, in addition to these uh, kind of six-inch-ish sort of figures, that typical Bandai vinyl scale, there are two bigger figures. Uh, namely, we get Final Wars Godzilla and Skull Island Kong. Uh, interesting here is that the Kong is actually slightly different from the smaller one. Uh, the smaller one has a closed mouth. The open one, or the larger one, excuse me, has an open mouth like Kong is roaring. Uh, now, in addition to these figures, there's been some SKUs, Walmart SKUs. Those are the, uh, the barcodes 
and that's like when you scan a product at the store, that's what comes up on the on the receipt. Uh, and the leaked SKU, leaked Walmart SKUs suggest that there are more figures coming in this line and that they could include King Caesar, Gorosaurus, Rodan, Jet Jaguar, Hedra, Megalon, and the 1933 King Kong. But we've not seen any confirmation of any of these, uh, as cool as that would be. Now, other than Kong, personally, I suspect that these will be uh, Bandai reissues on Playmates packages. But Playmates did their own versions of Space Godzilla and Destoroya, both of which, obviously, there are uh, existent Bandai molds for. But uh, I'm trying to remember if they were ever released in the States. I don't think they were. So, I mean, I would assume, if nothing else, King Caesar would be the American uh, mold, the very, um, you know, frequently used American Bandai mold. But for the rest of them, I, I just don't know. And we have to until we get more confirmation, uh, or it's just speculation at this point. If these are Bandai reissues, I can see these being very popular, as uh, some of these characters have uh, not had uh, been relatively easy to find over the years. I can see Jet Jaguar especially being a very popular uh, pickup for uh, uh, Daikaiju fans here in the States. Now, kind of a corollary to that, the Jack Pacific Godzilla King of the Monsters toys have now, if they're still at your Walmart, and chances are they are, from what I've seen, they're going to be on clearance. Now, I picked up the three versus sets for my kids. This is Godzilla versus Rodan, Godzilla versus Mothra, and Godzilla versus King Ghidorah. Of course, the Godzilla in each of these is slightly different. Uh, one is just a straight Godzilla. One is kind of the spines powering up, and the other, the third, is like a burning Godzilla type. Uh, I picked those up for the kids, and I will probably grab the single-pack Rodan uh, for myself, because as you all know, Rodan is my boy. And those of you who follow me on social media might have seen my recent purchase of a Bandai Final Wars Rodan for my vinyl display. Uh, we saw him, uh, I put a picture up of him perched on my kitchen table along with a DVD copy of The Mysterian. So if you uh, pass on the Jack Specific toys or if you want to get some for your kids, you know, birthdays or maybe plan ahead for next year's Christmas, go check out Walmart. They'll probably get them at a pretty good price. Now in Ultraman news, the next wave of the Mill Creek Ultraman Blu-ray releases have been announced. Ultraman Ace... Well, the standard kind of offering that they've done for the show is where we have a complete series box plus a steelbook release, and this will come out on May 12, 2020. Well, Ultraman X, again, similar to the other uh, modern releases, will have a complete series plus movie set as well as a single disc release of just the movie, which is Ultraman X, the movie. Here, here he comes, our Ultraman. Now, the packaging is in line with the previous releases, both the Showa and the Modern Series. Of course, the Steelbooks are designed to all go on the shelf nicely, but even the non-Steelbook editions all match up and have similar packaging. So if you go that route, it'll look very nice on your shelf. And the Modern ones, um, uh, the Modern one for Ultraman X, it does feature the same sort of format uh, like we saw with Orb and Jeed, but Orb and Jeed had a red diagonal slash going either left to right or right to left. Depending on the series, Ultraman X actually features a blue slash. Uh, so same same format, just a little bit different on the colors. These are all up for pre-order on Amazon. I recommend it. I mean, my friend Adam and I were talking about this. Mill Creek is going to bankrupt us, and we're going to say thank you <laughs> for them bankrupting us with all these Ultraman releases. And I'm I'm loving it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's just seeing them on the seeing all this Ultra stuff that even a few years ago, the idea of getting some of these series in English was just. A pipe dream and now getting them on a regular releases 
and uh, you know, you know, just not not waiting years between releases, but waiting months between releases, and just having them show up at my house from Amazon. It's just an incredible time to be a fan. That's all I got to say about that. Uh, now, finally, an intriguing item that I found on Sci-Fi Japan, a great website. I've plugged them many times, sci-fijapan.com. So, Kodakawa Pictures. Now, that's the outfit, you may remember, which owns what was once Dai. And they were the ones who released the films The Great Yokai War and Gamma the Brave. And then the, the TV series Daimajin Canon. Those are all, of course, updates of classic Dai uh, monster properties. Now, they have announced... The pre-production has begun on a film entitled Nezera 1964. Now, you might recall, and uh, maybe if you've read some of John LeMay's books or uh, seen some of these articles on Wikizilla or heard uh, a letter I wrote to my brother's podcast, uh, that Nezera was actually Dai's first attempt at a giant monster movie, utilizing miniature sets and live rats. But ultimately, health and safety concerns shut the movie down, with the studio, in fact, getting infested with lice and ticks and having to spray pesticide that made it you know, unsafe for anybody to work there. Uh, Dai instead, of course, produced Giant Monster Gamera, and the rest is history. Now, this film is being written and directed by Hiroto Yokogawa, who was the creator of 2018's The Great Buddha Arrival, which I've still not seen. You may have, uh, I remember hearing about this, but I have not seen this in English so I've not seen that uh, that film. Now, but Nezera 1964 is being described as a drama about the unmade film rather than an actual version of that Nezera story. So it's an idea about the behind the scenes of them making this failed film. Now, I mean, this sounds pretty fascinating to me, to be honest. And the Sci-Fi Japan article also goes on to note that the film would in fact feature completed special effect shots depicting the imaginary completed film as if it were made in 1964. So we may get some actual, uh, you know, giant rat monsters running around. Uh, there's a website, which is Nezera1964.com. Unfortunately, it's in Japanese. There's also a Facebook page, unfortunately, in Japanese. Uh, I'll be keeping an eye on them, even though I don't speak Japanese. Um, you know, pictures translate, you know, but uh, I'll keep an eye on those. Um, and, uh, and frankly, after the film we watch on this episode, after Rego, another independent Daikaiju film, I'm also going to be keeping an eye not only with Nezera, but for the great Buddha arrival, if that ever makes it over here to the States, because this has kind of opened my eyes a little bit to some of these independent productions, which, uh, maybe I, I hadn't been paying enough attention to previously. So that's all the news I've got. If you've got anything interesting you'd like to share, please email it in, directive at yahoo.com, and I'll be sure to give you credit here on the show. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Rago, King of the Sea Monsters, or Deep Sea Monster Rago. Once upon a time, five friends who met on the Bot Talk Transformers forum set out to develop a podcast dedicated to their various interests. Transformers, science fiction, fantasy, and comic books. Part fanboys and part assholes, they came to be known as the Fanholes. Their unbridled enthusiasm for podcasting did not end there, and soon enough, their proper podcast spun off into the Fanholes network of podcasts. Besides our podcast proper, the Fanholes soon had a continuum of genre-specific, focused shows such as Mobile Suit Mondays, Transformers Tuesdays, Toku Thursdays, and Sentai Saturdays. New weekly content can be found on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and fanholespodcast.blogspot.com. Fanholes Podcast, the pop culture podcast, made for the fans 
by the fans. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Shinkaiju Reigo, also known as Reigo, the Deep Sea Monster versus the Battleship Yamato, or simply Deep Sea Monster Reigo, is an independent film, originally titled Reigo versus Yamato. The film was first screened on November 3rd, 2005 in Santa Monica, California, before premiering in Japan at the Sapporo Film Festival on May 10th, 2008, two and a half years later. The film would receive its widest release here in the West in late 2019 under the title Rego, King of the Sea Monsters on DVD, Blu-ray, and limited edition VHS from Outfit SRS Cinema. Now, this wide release, including the title and cover art, apparently led a good deal of folks to believe that the film was a so-called mockbuster, like those made by the Asylum, made to cash in on Godzilla King of the Monsters, especially when it started showing up at Walmart during the holiday season this past year. A reasonable enough conclusion, given the obscure nature of this film, most folks, uh, except if you know, you're already in the Daikaiju fan uh, community, had probably never heard of it. Our writers are Shinpei Hayashia and Kaite Toriyami. Our special effects are credited to Kazuaki Skayama. Our producers are Hisako Iwaye and Hajime Okano. And our director is Shinpei Hayashia. And our synopsis is adapted from Wikipedia, the regular Wikipedia. In September 1942, Admiral Yamagami is ordered to rendezvous the battleship Yamato with the combined fleet that is gathering at the Truk Islands in Micronesia, a key strategic point in the South Pacific. Among Yamagami's crew are the cantankerous divisional officer Noboru Osaku, who has left his pregnant wife at home. Osaku is a gunnery master and boorishly prays for his child to be a son before he ships off. Also aboard is the young ensign Takeshi Kaido, Unsure of what the future may bring, Kaido goes off to war without declaring his intentions for his childhood sweetheart, Chie. He always carries her photo in his coat pocket while Chie longs for his return to their seaside hometown. When Yamato arrives at the truck islands, the married Osako decides to sneak in an island woman named Momoka aboard, but to Osako's annoyance, Momoka brings along her elderly grandfather, who insists on telling him a local tale about monsters that has been passed down for generations. The disbelieving naval officer is told that the surrounding waters have become infested with man-sized carnivorous bonefish, and as dangerous as the fish are, they are nothing more than an opening act for an even greater menace, the legendary monster called Rago. The next night, a lookout spots a massive shape half-submerged in the distance. Believing it to be an enemy submarine, Yamato fires on it and scores a direct hit. Osako is shocked when the object emits a strange cry as it sinks beneath the waves. He reports the incident and the story of Rago to his commander and shipmates. Unbeknownst to the crew, they have killed the offspring of Rago. Not long after that first encounter, a school of luminous bonefish launch themselves from the water like flying fish and attack a group of soldiers standing watch on the deck. Kaido hears their screams and rushes to the rescue, but finds the men already torn to pieces. Just as the old man predicted, the bonefish herald the arrival of Rago, a beast 80 meters long and resembling a cross between a dinosaur and a shark. Seething with rage at the murder of its cub, the monster attacks the combined fleet with incredible ferocity and awesome destructive power. The naval forces are caught off guard and Rago is able to destroy escort ships and damage Yamato before returning to the ocean depths. 
The crew quickly regroups and plans a counterattack, but when Rago returns, it manages to stay one step ahead of the Japanese forces. Almost as if it is aware that the Amato's main guns are long-range weapons which are ineffective up close, the monster attacks at close range or blasts the ships from underwater with blue bursts of electricity. With the situation's grave, none of the officers can agree on a tactic to successfully repel Rago. Making matters worse, Yamagami is promoted to Secretary of the Navy and recalled to Tokyo, being replaced by Captain Matsuda from the Naval Academy and Ensign Kaido's former professor, well-versed in both naval tactics and marine life. Over Osako's loud objections, Kaido suggests a last-ditch plan of attack that will either stop Rago or sink the Yamato. In the final battle, Kaido's strategy, flooding compartments of Yamato to partially submerge the ship, thus lowering the angle of attack on the main guns, is a success, and Rago is seemingly killed in a barrage of fire. But despite their victory against a deep-sea monster, the men of Yamato eventually meet their fate on April 7, 1945, sunk by American forces south of Kyushu. This was a real treat for me to finally get to see a film I had heard about for many years, but really had no way to watch, especially given that uh, this was an official release with an official translation rather than a fan sub bootleg or the like. It was really, uh, like I said, uh, I was very excited to watch this movie. A little background first now. Hayashiya first rose to prominence for his fan film Gamera 4, Truth, which tells the story of what happens after the end credits of Gamera 3, namely dealing with Gamera and the Gauss Swarm. Now, given the quality and response of that fan film, which has never and likely never will have any official release, the indie studio Option Incorporated brought in Hayashiya to make a Daikaiju movie for them. Hayashiya came up with the story, and he was able to get many veterans of the tokusatsu industry to work on the film, including having Rego himself, designed by... Uh, Kite Amiya, creator of the popular Garo series of tokusatsu shows, and the monster being sculpted by Tomo Haraguchi and Shikiyagi Ito, both of whom had worked um, as model makers and sculptors on the Heisei Gamera films. Now, the film was first screened, as I said, in November 2005 at the American Film Market in Santa Monica. But after this screening, the film went back to the editing booth as special effects were upgraded or revised. Now, during this period, Option was running out of money, so the film ended up at a different house, Intermedia Company Limited, and it was completed in 2008. And the film did play in Japanese theaters that summer, but as I said, it didn't make it to the U.S. until 2019, some 11 years later. Now, we start the film proper with some historical background detailing various treaties which expired in the 1930s, which ultimately led to the creation of Yamato. Uh, Name-checked here also was Yamato's operating number of A140F6. Now, I appreciate the documentarian style of this segment. It adds a certain air of plausibility or docudrama about it. And the opening credits also feature some very nice of what I am assuming is underwater stock footage. Well, as our first very brief glimpse at Rago, moving much too fast to really let us see him. It's just more of a tease, but the film starts out very, uh, very professionally. Now, the prologue, which feature Osako and Kaido before they ship out, is presented in black and white in what I can only assume is a homage to the early Showa era films. Even the way that the sequence is shot reminds me of very early Honda. Uh, just kind of the way the scenes are blocked out, the way the characters are positioned and the way they move. As part of this prologue, Kaido is actually quite cruel to Chie. He calls her a child and that she's, you know, a crybaby. But it's pretty clear that this is some sort of a strange flirting between them. 
It's, you know, it's, it's young love. What are you going to do? Now, the acting in this sequence and the film in general really reminds me of the type of acting you might see in a Kamen Rider or Super Sentai TV show. It's not bad, but it's certainly not subtle by any stretch. I don't know if that is more on the writing or the acting or if it's really a mix of the two, but it's certainly acceptable given the independent production of the film. And it's, uh, it's never quite, it's never really distracting or detracting from the overall experience. Now, after the prologue, we switch to color. And when we make that switch, the colors are very crisp and clean. This is clearly shot digitally. Again, it looks like an indie film, that kind of digital um, uh, film technique, which is fine. Uh, the color palette is a little strange contextually with the wartime setting, it just being so bright and then being in this wartime setting. Uh, now this, when we do switch over to color, this leads to the first shot we get of Yamato, which is set in front of the sun coming up over the Pacific. Uh, very clear reference to the Japanese imperial flag, which was uh, flown uh, during this time. And it's an absolutely lovely composition shot. Uh, that, that Right off the bat, that made me sit up and take notice that there's some very well-constructed and creative shots in this film. Now, on the ship, Osako gets a case of mistaking identity with uh, Momika's grandfather. A nice gag. He's, uh, they smuggle Momika into his, uh, into his room underneath the flag, and he starts groping and uh, underneath the flag, and it turns out to be the grandfather. So it's kind of a, uh, I guess that's an amusing gag. Uh, but the grandfather himself, who is, who is not named, at least not on the subtitles on the DVD, is a nice twist on a stock Daikaiju character, the wise native elder. Uh, he tells the legend of the bonefish in Rago, much like many other native el elders have told unbelieving Japanese people about other monsters. Uh, and just here, instead of them going to the island, he is brought to the Japanese. I thought that was a nice twist. I especially like his line at the very end of his scene when he says, Rago heralds an impending disaster. Now we'll come back to that later, so remember that. And with Yamato having joined up with the fleet, we get a series of shots of the CGI ships, and uh, it's fair to say that they're a mixed bag. Now, admittedly, it is a cliche to say that they look good, you know, air quotes up to the mic, for the budget, but that's an accurate assessment. They do look good for the budget. Now, amusingly, one of the trailers on the SRS Cinema DVD is for a movie called, I swear I'm not making this up, Bad CGI Sharks Movie wherein two indie filmmakers are menaced in the real world by bad CGI sharks. And in the trailer, one character even says that the sharks look good for the budget. So it, it, I, I just was really amused as I was making up my notes, and I meant to write that. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> that was already on the, on the trailer. So when the juvenile Rego is spotted and mistaken for a submarine, the gunners sight the target and fire upon it, a direct hit. Now, afterwards, Osako and his gunnery crew, they're proud of their shot. Now, this, in and of itself, is not strange to me as an American. But in a Japanese film, having such pride in the use of a weapon is unusual, at least for the ones that I've seen, outside of perhaps a Chanbara. But especially given the influence of uh, Honda, a noted pacifist, on the daikaiju genre at, uh, at, at large. Now, of course, Osako is a bit of a buffoon. So this could partially be chalked up to that, but there's also the fact that during the war, the Japanese sailors and soldiers, you know, served with pride and dedication. Of course, after the war it became a taboo topic for many for a very long time. But this film, being set in 1942 and 1943, 
It's free to explore that to a degree. Now, of course, in the context of this scene, the pride of Osako in his, in his and his crew's performance is juxtaposed with the death of the juvenile. Um, clear man versus nature theme, again, very common in the daikaiju genre. So it does work on a couple of different levels here. Now, similar to the scene with the gunnery crew, the next scene shows the sailors celebrating and entertaining each other after the admiral issues a ration of sake for sinking what they believe to be the submarine. The camaraderie, the crew, it's actually really nice to see. You know, these are just ordinary men who have been called to serve. So they're shown to be ordinary men enjoying themselves uh, with a little bit of uh, time off from their duty. Now, after the party, a drunken Osako finds a man in the water and fishes him out. Now, this man ends up being an American sailor, Lieutenant Commander Norman Melville. <sighs> and conveniently enough, Melville speaks some Japanese because the crew speaks very little English. Now, he and Osako riff off each other for comedy because they're both gunners. But primarily, at this point, Melville's main role is to be there to give further warning about the monsters in the water. He tells that his ship was sunk by monsters. Now, from that scene, we go pretty much straight on into the bonefish attack, which is fast and utterly brutal in its depiction. The combination of fast cuts and the panic screams of the sailors uh, make for an effective and really horrific moment. The bonefish themselves, they remind me of the Mega Neuron from Rodan. You know, you get the idea that they could be some real prehistoric beast. You know, that would explain their size, but they should not be alive in the modern world. And that makes them, you know, pretty scary. Plus their size, again, being man-sized, that's more relatable than a giant monster sometimes. Now, after the attack, we get another glimpse of Rago conducting lightning down from the sky. A cool visual, which is never really explained. Is, is he drawing... Uh, you know, a static charge from the clouds? Is he generating it and it's going, jumping up to the moisture in the clouds? It's, it's not really explained, but it does look cool. Additionally, we also see a bonefish swim in front of Rago's dorsal fin, giving you an idea of the absolutely massive size of this monster. Uh, later on, Kaido says that he estimates the size of the creature at 70 or 80 meters, which would be 230 to 260 feet long or so. So the Admiral orders a meeting of all the officers, including the non-coms. And this meeting is a complete disaster with everyone arguing and no one coming to any sort of agreement other than to repeatedly tell one older officer to shut up. Now, beyond the comedy of that latter part, which actually is pretty funny, the spoofing of Japanese-style bureaucracy where nothing is accomplished because no one will compromise, it heralds a similar take many years down the road in Shin Godzilla. Although, of course, the context is much more serious in that film and the satire much more biting than we get here. Now, with no plan of action, the fleet basically will, you know, literally stick to their guns the next night when Rago attacks directly. Now, again, we get a lot of complaints sometimes. Oh, monster scenes take place at night, you know, and then, then you know, Pacific Rim Uprising. Oh, the monster scenes take place during the day. Well, here they're done at night because Rago, being a deep sea monster, doesn't like the bright lights when he comes out at night. So that at least is explained. There are some nicely executed and moody shots of the fleet at sunset. And what because of the sunset, the harsh lighting does some, uh, does some legwork to disguise the CGI of the ships and make them look a little more palatable. Rigo's attack itself utilizes a mix of both CGI and practical effects work, mostly in the form of articulated puppetry. The choreography, for lack of a better word, of the battle is well done, the destroyers interposing themselves in front of Rago to protect Yamato from attack. 
but the battle itself does not go well. The ship's guns, including the massive Type 94 guns on Yamato, cannot aim low enough to strike Rago at close range, and he moves fast enough to avoid ranged attacks. I appreciated this little bit of naval tactical disadvantage, a twist which plays a big role later on in the story. Now, as an aside, the Type 94 guns were 46-centimeter guns, the largest guns ever mounted to a naval ship at this time. And they, uh, Yamato and, uh, and uh, Musashi, which was its sister ship, were the only ones that had them. And they are, they are impressive looking. Now, in the wake of the failed battle, the Admiral receives his orders to return. I like this small scene because the Admiral loses his temper. Uh, he is sitting in, I guess, his quarters or his ready room. And uh, he is brought a message by a, uh, a sailor. And uh, after he reads it, he loses his temper, as I said, stabs a spoon repeatedly into his breakfast, which is a, a cantaloupe melon. Now, earlier, uh, the admiral had told his officers, do not become agitated or your men will be agitated. So I thought it was a nice touch seeing this little crack in the admiral's exterior in this private moment of frustration that he's losing his command and being sent back to man a desk in Tokyo. Rago's second attack does not go much better than the first for the Imperial Navy. Uh, the destroyers attack with guns, which mostly miss, depth charges, which seemingly only make Rago mad, and torpedoes, one of which Rago manages to reverse course using his tail, swishing at it, causing it to turn around, striking a destroyer, and sinking it. <laughs> not one thing, it's another. We get some really great looks here at Rago in action, both as a CG model and an articulated puppet. Really is a well-designed monster, I have to say that. The way that Rago swims, you know, he zips very quickly through the water, reminded me a bit of Zegra, which of course we discovered a, a little while ago. But his pectoral, his pectoral fins, his side fins, are much more pronounced, almost like a ray more than a shark. The face also is much more of the reptilian or saurian or, frankly, Godzilla variety. Uh, but the details on the puppet face and um, upper body, they're, they're intricate. The movement is very well done. You know, considering the obviously limited budget of this film, all the money, it's on screen right there in, in, um, in the, the form of Rago. I really have to say that. It's very impressive. Now, Kaido's theory involves strategically flooding chambers on Yamato to partially submerge her, thus changing the angle that the guns can effectively be fired at. Uh, it, it makes sense in theory. Of course, uh, they make a point that he's not a gunner and doesn't understand the, the physics behind the gunning. Captain Matsuda initially thinks that the idea has merit, being one that Kaido had presented back at the Naval Academy. But after Asako and some other top officers criticize it, both Matsuda and Kaido back off from it, with one senior officer saying that they should speak no more of such a ridiculous idea. Now, I may be reading too much into this, but the script here seems to be, again, taking a shot at bureaucratic decision-making, with an outside-the-box idea dismissed before it is even vetted, simply because it is unpopular. Um, and again, it's even though they're, they need to look at all angles, but they immediately dismiss this one, and they don't have any other solutions. Now, afterwards, Kaido receives a letter from Chie, which he says is black with the censor's pen, and he is not kidding. We get to see the letter, and more than three-fourths of it is uh, appears blacked out with uh, black uh, ink. And, um, and th this, this I thought, was a nice, uh, interesting little moment here, character-wise, for Chie, who's very much a minor character in this film. But as Kato reads the letter, uh, we do get a quick reference uh, to Chie from the rations, 
but obviously the sensor does not allow anything else through. We only get one line about it. Uh, but the, the real interesting part to me is that the obfuscated romance between these two was, it's put plain, at least for Chie here, as in the letter, she says that she is not a child, referencing their earlier conversation, but is actually studying hard to be a good wife. Now, this turn of phrase that she's studying hard to be a good wife, it may be a bit shocking in 2019, perhaps to younger viewers, those, um, you know, maybe a little this, such a phrase, I guess, would be un, un, unusual. But again, given that this is 1943 in Japan, I think it's a bang-on statement. That's exactly the thing that a young girl would be saying to her sailor that's out at sea, is that uh, she is trained to be a good wife so that when he gets back, they can get married. So I thought that was a really nice touch, and it very the way that it was presented here in the letter, I thought was a nice way to do it without, um, you know, it, it's it it comes right out and says it, but by putting it in the letter and the way that she phrases it, I thought it, it did a uh, a good job of being at least a little subtle. Now the final attack by Rego is the longest and most complexity affects set pieces, as one would expect. Rego makes a big splash here. I mean that literally, as the monster leaps directly over Yamato, calling down lightning as he does so. It's an incredible shot. This is the kind of thing you'd expect to see in the final moments of a trailer for a big-budget American movie, the monster making some giant leap. Now, even on a limited budget, it's playing the creativity of those involved in this film are still there and in, in uh, abundant amounts. Now, the lightning attack is harsh as well, with the current actually, you know, uh, uh, damaging members of the crew. It kills one of Osako's gunnery crew which forces him to go get Melville from the brig to tape the fallen gunner's spot. I thought that was amusing. So with no other options left, Masuda decides to try Kaido's plan. Osako still doesn't think it will work, but his pride in the ship and his country means he will do his duty. Again, this theme of pride in their service and nationalistic attitude is unusual for a Daikaiju movie, again, given um, the kind of tropes that were established for it in the, in the Showa period. It's even more unusual to me now you know, at least here in the West, that the term, you know, nationalism has been conscripted by certain political ideologies to be synonymous with bigoted. But again, I have to applaud Hayashiya and uh, Toriyumi for tackling this head on, given that the time frame and setting of the film, it makes perfect sense for a sailor, a, a, uh, a non-commissioned officer even, on Yamato to have pride in not only his ship, but also in his homeland that he is uh, fighting for and serving. Meanwhile, this is all going on. Rego continues his attack. He sinks another destroyer. Now, this sequence of him fighting the destroyers, it's culminated with uh, what I call a hero shot. You know, the shot that obviously a lot of money went into for the CGI. It's the best CGI in the film where we get a close-up of CGI Rego as he tosses a sailor up in the air and eats him. Yikes. So with Kaido's plan in effect, it's now time for the titular showdown with Rego charging directly at Yamato and Yamato training its big guns right at him. In a scene I honestly did not see coming, and this is as someone who's been watching Daikaiju films for 35 years, Rego leaps out of the water and tail chops Yamato, avoiding the barrage from the gun battery in the process. It is a crazy, ballsy choice by the creative team here, and I love it. If you have a CGI monster, let him do some stuff which would be difficult to do with a physical effect, right? So I'm, I'm all in favor of that. 
Rago then turns and charges again, and now it becomes a race against the clock to get the battery traversed 180 degrees before he strikes Yamato and likely sinks her. Now, the traversing in real life, this would have taken a minute and a half. Uh, Yamato was rated at 2 degrees per second rate of traverse on those guns. But, you know, we'll chalk this up to dramatic license and tension because the guns are traversed, of course, just in time, for Reiko to leap again, only now he eats a chest full of shells, complete with a bloody spray. Ugh, it's a brutal and direct attack on a monster, especially by a human machine. You know, I, it's one thing to get, you know, monster gore, um, thinking maybe when Gigan repeatedly uh, body slams a jet cutter into Godzilla, or when a Gamera film, when you know, Gamera and one of his foes, uh, you know, cut each other open. But here with a battleship uh, gun battery just blowing a, a, a big chunk right through the middle of uh, the monster, it's very shocking. Now, uh, oddly enough, there's a bit of comedic relief right here as the gunnery crew all look at each other one by one and say, Yatta? Yatta? We did it? We did it? And then when they get to the end of the line, it changes to, Yatta! Yatta! We did it! We did it! So, again, you've, you've got this big exciting scene and then you got to just relieve just a little bit. Now, that, that comedy moment is short-lived, though. The wounded Rago now is an easy target for the fleet, which pound him merciful, mercilessly on the surface. Kaido screams for them to stop firing, and he says, Let him die with peace and dignity. Then Captain Matsuda issues the order and all the ships cease firing. And Matsuda adds, it is not right to torment something which is dying as our two sensitive characters demonstrate some measure of empathy for another living thing, uh, which again is not, I, I, you know, it's, it's not an uncommon thing in Daikaiju, but it just didn't really happen much in this film, given the militaristic setting. Um, Raigo slips under the surface of the ocean, his blood clearly making the rising sun of the Japanese flag, a little bit of symbolism there. And then Matsuda then tells the men that only by having their minds as one were they able to overcome Rago, and that America will be an even bigger challenge. I appreciated this sidelong reference to teamwork and cooperation from our Japanese sailors, given the importance of those traits to Japanese culture. And, um, you know, I've read that that was something that officers tried to instill in their men during the war as well. So the first epilogue jumps ahead to April 1945, where Yamato is in dire straits following the interception of their orders by the Americans. In this scene, footage from the war is intercut with new black and white scenes of our cast members under attack. The film takes a really bold turn here. So far, we've been a military sci-fi film. Obviously, uh, some fantastical elements with the use of the monsters, but, you know, uh, no more or less than any other Daikaiju film. At this point, we go hard line into symbolic fantasy, with a giant red and white clad kabuki samurai standing on the deck of Yamato in full color against a black and white action around him. And it appears that he is directing the various American attacks on the ship. Now, as each member of the crew dies and we uh, see their, uh, their final moments, their face becomes painted with similar makeup as the samurai with the red streaks of, uh, red streaks of makeup picked out in color on their black and white faces. Now, I did some research trying to determine the specific meaning of samurai in kabuki theater. 
But to be honest, folks, I could do a whole series of podcasts on kabuki and not even scratch the surface. That's how much is involved in this uh, traditional art. So, you know, as a samurai directs death on the crew, I'm just kind of going with it. The narrator tells us of the account of an American Marine who was involved in the attack, who said that during the battle, he saw what looked like, quote, a huge black shadow pushing her down, referring to Yamato. Um, now, after we are told this, we get the ghost of Rego doing exactly that. It looks like he simply leaps up on the deck and pushes Yamato down under the sea. Now, remember, remember how the old man said that Rego was a herald of impending disaster? It could be taken to mean that the battle with Rego was a disaster, but I like to think that Rego's appearance here and their fight with him and the great harm they did to this uh, creature from the natural world is what led to their ultimate destruction two years following. Now, the final shot of this portion of the prologue shows the picture of Chie, which Kaido kept by his heart, falling into the sea, and uh, it, we see it floating in the water. And uh, from there, we transition back to Japan after the war. Chie is all grown up, and we see her praying at the shrine on the anniversary of Kaido's death. Now, as she walks down the steps and leaves, coming the other way, she is passed by Osako's wife and young son, who I'd say is maybe five. Uh, so it seems Osako got the son he wanted after all. Now, hopefully his son will be a better man than his father, although, you know, Osako did his duty as a sailor, even though he was kind of a jerk. It's a quiet ending. It's got a nice light touch given that, you know, none of our main cast survived the last reel. We see all of their deaths uh, at, during the sinking of Yamato. So I did like this reminder that, that life does in fact go on and that those uh, men that served on Yamato are remembered by their loved ones. Overall, Reiko is a superlative work given its independent origins and budget. It's both an homage to the great Daikaiju films of the Showa era but honestly, it blazes its own trail with a period setting and a strong depiction of the Imperial Navy, which helped the film stand up on its own feet and differentiate it from the others. The effects are a mixed bag, of course, but even with the, you know, for the budget caveat, I think the effects succeed, even if they are clearly working a level below what we expect from, say, a modern Toho film, let alone one of the legendary films. The script is earnest and straightforward. The acting is certainly passable, if not terribly nuanced, but on the whole, it really is a treat to get an opportunity to sit down with an entirely new monster concept, not a film that's part of another series or a remake of an earlier creation, something which is new and different and does things outside of that normal Daikaiju box. Now, as I had not seen this before, I sat down the first time and just watched the film. No notes, nothing like that. Frankly, I was sucked in to this rousing Navy versus monster adventure. I, I'm very eager to expose my friends to this one, much like other unusual Daikaiju offerings. The one that jumps to mind immediately is the Daimajin series, which I've, I've shown to some of my friends, and uh, they've really enjoyed just because it's so unique. And I'm also eager now to see the follow-up Raiga, God of the Monsters, uh, which SRS Cinema will be releasing in the next couple of months as we're here now in January of 2020. Uh, so speaking of which, if you would like to own Rago King of the Sea Monsters, you're in luck because you've got a few options. Now, the DVD is a wide release available on Amazon. I checked the price today. It was $9.96. Or if you prefer Prime Video, you can buy it for $7.99 or rent it for $1.99. Now, if you would like to get the limited edition Blu-ray, you can head over to SRS 
cinemastore.com and pick it up there. And if you're really old school, you can also get that limited edition VHS tape at the same site. Now, folks, I am not going to lie. I may be doing that for my Daikaiju VHS shelf. I'm, they've got, they've got a VHS of both Raigo and Raigo and, uh, I may pick that up. I, I may not, I may not be able to resist. Um, now the SRS Cinema Store also has a couple of t-shirts. If you feel the need to show off your Rego love on the convention circuit or maybe at, uh, G-Fest. So, uh, go check that out. It's at store.com. They've got a lot of good cult and indie movies to check out there as well. All right. So uh, I'm going to throw it out to, to uh, all of you listeners. Have you guys seen Rego King of the Sea Monsters? Did you get this for Christmas maybe or pick it up, uh, on your holiday shopping? Uh, what do you think? Did you like it? Did you not like it? Do you want to see more of a uh, movies? Uh, do you like the wartime setting? Are you, uh, you turned off by it? Please write in. I'd, I'd love to hear from anyone who's seen this movie and what they think about it. Earth Destruction Directive at yahoo.com. Let's keep the conversation going. Cause as I said, this, it just, I was just so tickled by the idea to sit down with a brand new monster and a brand new concept and, uh, you know, just, um, you know, experience after the first time. It really was a, a very big treat for me. So, all right. I think that's about all I've got to say on Rigo King of the Sea Monsters. As I said, I'm going to throw it over to you. If you got anything to say, write on in or destruction directive at yahoo.com. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. In the mood for some real Southern cooking, then come on down to Biscuit Basket, where we always put the biscuit in the basket. We should go to Biscuit Basket. That's where they put the biscuit in the basket. I don't know. If you loved us, you'd take us to Biscuit Basket. Biscuit Basket, Biscuit Basket, Biscuit Basket, Biscuit Basket, Biscuit Basket. All right, all right, for the love of God, we'll go to Biscuit Basket! Remember, if you love your family, y'all take them to Biscuit Basket. Just off State Road 23 on the frontage road. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. The Thing number 31 was cover dated January of 1986 and was released on or about September 24th, 1985. This information comes from Mike's Amazing World of Comics, which of course you can find at dcindexes.com. Now, oddly about that date, that September 1985 date, Godzilla 1985 was recently in the United States in August 1985. So I do wonder if there was some connective tissue between uh, doing a story, as you will find out here in, with this comic, in relation to when a uh, fairly uh, large promotional campaign was had just taken place for a new Godzilla movie here in the United States. Our cover is by Ron Wilson and Sam De La Rosa. And it's a take on a typical heroic fantasy type movie poster, kind of like the original Star Wars poster. We have Ben, front and center, with a fetching damsel gripping at his leg, and the monster, Devil Dinosaur, in this case, rearing up behind him. It's, uh, it's a very catching cover just because of the, the uh, poster-like layout. It's uh, not supremely detailed, but I love the layout so much that I really do like this cover. Our writer is Mike Carlin. Our breakdowns are credited to Ron Wilson with finishes by Kim DeMolder. The letterer is Jack Morelli. Colorist Bob Sharon. The editor is Mark Gruenwald. And Jim Shooter is the referee. And our story is entitled Devil Dinosaur, The Movie. And the synopsis is from yours truly. 
When the unlimited class wrestling promotion gets temporarily shut down to get itself into National Safety Committee compliance, Ben Grimm, the ever-loving blue-eyed Fang, decides to take a vacation to a tiny Pacific island and visit his fan Sharon Ventura, who is working as a stuntwoman on Devil Dinosaur the Movie. Things don't start out well, however, as Ben mistakes the full-size Devil Dinosaur animatronic prop for the real deal and damages it with a solid left hook. Soon, Ben again finds himself on the wrong side of the shooting situation, saving Sharon from a seemingly fatal fall from an animatronic pterodactyl, not noticing the crash pad below. Ben decides that he is going to stay in his trailer the next day, no matter what he hears outside. Naturally, that is a day that the set is menaced by the mutated monster last seen fighting Iron Man in the Pacific. The cast and crew used a pterodactyl and devil dinosaur animatronics to drive the monster back to the sea without any injuries. Afterwards, Ben inquires about what went down, but Sharon tells him it was just show business. The two start to have a heart-to-heart, -heart, but rather than hear bad news, Ben decides to just enjoy the tropical sunset. <laughs> this is one that I had seen the cover for a long time ago. There, I don't, I'm sure it's still around. There used to be a site... It was, I think it was called the Everlove and Blue-Eyed homepage, and it had a, a little short synopses and ratings for Marvel 2-in-1 and this thing ongoing series. And I remember seeing this cover while I was uh, uh, going through and, and trying to get information about Devil Dinosaur. I want to say this was in the lead-up to the Devil Dinosaur uh, hardcover that came out several years ago, but it's a very good pickup and I enjoy quite a bit. Uh, so I remember the cover from that. I had not at the time realized that it did in fact feature Godzilla. I just assumed that it featured Devil Dinosaur, or in this case, the animatronic of Devil Dinosaur. So the opportunity to cover this for uh, the show when Godzilla appeared in it was a real treat. So let's get right into the notes. As I said, the cover casts Ben in the macho hero pose. And I do like the prehistoric girl, which from the story we can understand to be Sharon in her, uh, her costume. It evokes a very Kirby look from Wilson and Delosa, which is appropriate, obviously, for Ben, uh, but also for Devil Dinosaur, because of course Devil Dinosaur was a Jack Kirby creation, and uh, the prehistoric uh, uh, girl that Sharon is playing very much resembles a member of the tribe that Moon Boy was from. So of course it does evoke a certain Jack Kirby aspect, but also kind of just the the shape of her face kind of reminds me of how Kirby drew uh, Sue Storm back in the early days of Fantastic Four. So I, I really do like the Kirby-ish aspects, considering we've got two Kirby characters on the cover and a third character who's kind of, if you'll pardon the pun, aping a Kirby character uh, as well. The first segment is wrestling practice. Now, I've always been kind of confused by the unlimited class wrestling uh, promotion. Was it a shoot fighting league or was it a wrestling promotion? You know, did, you know, for lack of a better word, the boys or, you know, the talent, did they work together to work the match? Or if it, is it a shoot? You know, is it a real fight? If it's a work, this plot doesn't make a whole lot of sense because, you know, the guy from the National Safety Commission is like, well, you know, the spectators could get hurt. If it's a work, just keep the fight out of the crowd. Just fight in the ring. I mean, you don't have to leave the ring, right? I don't care how, you know, tough these guys are if they're working together. I'm just going to chalk the whole thing up to kayfabe and move on. Uh, we'd get a one-page interlude with Vance Astro, who's wearing a rather snazzy maroon bathrobe. Uh, and he talks to Ben in a little bit about taking a break, and Ben has a dizzy spell. I have to assume the dizzy spell here is a subplot, because it doesn't play into this story, so I'm assuming it's part of the overall 
um, a story that's going on that Carlin is telling with the thing uh, in the series. Now, uh, pretty soon into the book, we do get to the island, and Ben is straight-up tourist. Uh, he is an absolute American on vacation. He's got a Hawaiian shirt, khaki shorts, and a Panama hat. Now, I have to assume that all of these were tailored for him, because he's the, the thing. Uh, now, of course, Ben dresses like this for vacation. What else would Benjamin J. Grimm dress for on vacation other than a Hawaiian shirt and a Panama hat? The art generally is well-matched to the tone of the story, even if... The details seem to come and go. When Sharon and her fellow stuntwomen meet Ben, uh, the details in their faces on some panels is more prevalent than in others, even and similar length shots. So, so it, it, it's, it's almost as if I wonder if Wilson's breakdowns were a little bit lighter in certain spots, and so DeMolder had less to work with to finish. That's complete speculation. I don't know that for a fact. That's just kind of the feeling I get looking at it because sometimes there's a lot of detail and, and, and they look pretty tight and sometimes things are a little more loose. And with the particular credit of breakdowns and finishes rather than say what we might expect pencils and inks, I kind of wonder if there was, um, you know, just some different levels of detail in those, the, the initial uh, breakdowns done by Wilson. Uh, pages six and seven, we get Devil Dinosaur! Well, sort of. It's, as I said, the animatronic of uh, Devil Dinosaur uh, that's being used for the movie. Now, page seven is a splash page of Ben with a massive left cross right to the animatronic Devil Dinosaur's jaw. Devil Dinosaur's tail, is in a nice touch, is actually looped through the D of the Badoom sound effect, which I thought was nice. They could have just had it going behind it, and uh, Wilson and DeMort actually loop it through it. I thought that was a great touch for a very cool splash page of Ben doing some major damage to the animatronic. We get plenty of impact lines, as I said. It's really fun splash. And this leads directly into page 8, where we see the results with the robot guts of Devil Dinosaur's mechanical mouth kind of hanging out. The detail looks great in that in that panel with, as I said, all the mechanics and stuff inside. Uh, but again, lower down, the art is a little less detailed on the page. So it, I, again, I do have to wonder if certain aspects got a little more tension in the breakdown phase than others. Um, a thought I had while reading this, it's uh, this, as I said, this story was released in 1985, so we're about nine years removed from the Dino de Laurentiis King Kong, especially since that came out at the end of 1976. Um, but the, the full-size uh, devil dinosaur robot kind of reminded me of the so-called Kong bot, from that 76 Kong, you know, the full-size mechanical uh, Kong prop that was used for, essentially, in the final film only for a few shots. I do wonder if that was kind of a sidelong reference to that. Now, there is also the uh, a Godzilla bot that was used for a few sequences in Godzilla 1985. But again, um, I, it wasn't life-size like Devil Dinosaur is here. It's bigger, but it obviously wasn't life-size given the, the size of, of Godzilla. So I do wonder if that's kind of a, uh, a sideways reference to either or both of those uh, special effects techniques. Now on page 9, panel 7, uh, as Ben and Sharon are kind of heading back to the, to the set, we see the uh, sea and we see roiling water, and you know what that means in a Daikaiju story. Yep, there's something big under the water over there. Now the next sequence is the filming of the pterodactyl scene. Sharon and the other stunt people, they're clearly costumed like Moon Boy, as I said, uh, just like on the cover. And uh, the giant pterodactyl prop 
besides reminding me, of course, of the uh, Amicus, The Land Before Time, which had a couple of giant uh, pterodactyl props, um, you know, with uh, uh, with Troy McClure, or not Troy McClure, Doug McClure, Troy McClure's from The Simpsons, with uh, Doug McClure. Uh, there's also a Hawkman story that involves, from the, the second Hawkman ongoing, uh, it involves um, uh, a Kite Man. I want to say it's called For the Benefit of Kite Man, or For the Benefit of Mr. Kite. It's a pun on the Beatles song that uses a similar giant pterodactyl prop. That's apropos of absolutely nothing. Uh, but again, I, I think this more is kind of to call back to, like I said, land bef- the land that time forgot, or Rodan, or you know, other giant flying creatures that they use a big uh, prop on uh, marionette prop on strings. Not so much a marionette, but a, you know, a puppet prop on strings. Um, page 14. Now, page 14, when Ben is kind of brooding after uh, ruining uh, two separate effects <laughs> and uh, one stunt scene that, uh, that they're doing on the film, uh, Sharon goes and visits him on the beach. And uh, Sharon is dressed for the occasion. Does this, in fact, count as one more instance of bikini girls? Now, normally when we have uh, bikini girls, it's not a specific character uh, this is sharon in a bikini she's not just an anonymous bikini girl so we'll give it like partial credit you know as being a bikini girl's sighting here on her destruction directive uh page 15 we get more roiling water then godzilla or the monster that was godzilla that we saw mutated uh in those iron man issues appears briefly uh ben thinks his eyes might be playing tricks on him now i thought this was kind of odd because ben did actually see godzilla really up close at the American Museum of Natural History back during the uh, Manhattan arc, or I should say the New York City arc, because Godzilla went all over the city when he was shrunk down in the Marvel Godzilla. Uh, they, of course, fight him at the American Museum of Natural History. So he saw him right up close. But Godzilla does look a little bit different now that he's been mutated by Dr. Demonicus. So uh, I can see that Ben might not immediately say, hey, that's Godzilla. I thought, and it's kind of iffy, and plus Ben's been under a lot of stress, so eh, we'll just let it go. Getting into the climax, Godzilla rises out of the water on page 18, and he absolutely towers over the devil dinosaur robot. This is actually in line, as Godzilla was still not at full height during his time travel adventure with Devil Dinosaur in the uh, the tail end of the Marvel Godzilla, so I like that they're having him tower over Devil Dinosaur now, this uh, full-size Devil Dinosaur robot. Uh, we get a footnote to Iron Man 196, which solidifies the link. Obviously, uh, they could have used any monster, but clearly uh, Carlin used the uh, Godzilla monster that was also used uh, in uh, by Denny O'Neill in those uh, Iron Man issues. Even more so, on page 20, Sharon actually calls the monster Godzilla. But I have to question, is this an editorial mistake or was this intentional? Or is this just being a pop culture reference? We get that on occasion in pre-Marvel uh, pre-Marvel Godzilla comics, there's actually um, a fan issue of Fantastic Four that was actually turned into a power record where I forget what, it was in the early 70s and I forget who they're fighting and, and Ben says something about Godzilla years before Marvel and Godzilla ever had a relationship. So is this being a pop culture reference? Is this something that was in the script that editorial missed that we couldn't call this monster Godzilla? It's kind of interesting, but he the name Godzilla is dropped in this issue. So uh, there's no doubt who this monster is supposed to be, obviously, here. The climax itself is fairly low-key, with the uh, special effects man Trimble using the mechanical effects to annoy Godzilla enough that he loses interest. It's kind of a comedy spot a little bit, and that's okay. You know, again, there's not a, um, a huge amount of uh, tension in this story. It's kind of just um, more of a character-kind of driven story with a few 
a few uh, yeah. bits of action uh, mixed in there and mostly of the comedic style. We also get the comedy uh, of Ben refusing to come out of the trailer. This is very well executed. There's some really great reaction shots on Ben by Wilson and DeMolder, including he, he cocks his eyebrow on uh, page 18 at one point, and he's, you can see him sort of setting his jaw on edge like he's annoyed on page 21. The Arden Godzilla is generally quite nice as well. He's mostly in smaller panels, which I think is an interesting choice. Um, it's, it's harder kind of to get the scale of him with the humans when you don't have him very lar in a large panel and small humans, whereas the humans are very, very small when they're in a smaller panel, obviously. Uh, the ending, it's kind of a poignant moment. Doesn't look like Ben and Sharon will work out since... Uh, I'm not aware of there being some great Marvel romance between uh, Benjamin J. Grimm and Sharon Ventura. I'm guessing it's not, uh, again, not really relevant to the Godzilla aspects of this story. But uh, if you're a regular reader of the thing, I'm sure it, uh, it had its uh, a bit of emotional punch there. Overall, that's a fun issue of the thing. It's really, but, you know, not required reading for Godzilla fans by any stretch. I like Ben Grimm, so my enjoying of the issue, it's a low hurdle. You know, you give me a story with Ben Grimm, and then you throw in like a devil dinosaur robot, and they're on a movie set. I'm gonna be in. I'm gonna be into it anyway. So that it's not a required reading for Godzilla fans. Don't take that as a as a really tough criticism because it's not meant as one. It's more character driven, as I said a little while ago, with the action either being in the wrestling ring, which again I'm perfectly fine with that. Questions of kayfabe notwithstanding, or Ben, you know, air quotes up to the mic, saving Sharon. Uh, and a little bit of a Daikaiju Rampage at the end. Not much of one, but just a touch. Art, usually nice. Like I said, uh, a few bits are a little rough. But, you know, for uh, the mid-80s Marvel, it looks right in line with what you'd expect. Uh, it's a solid issue worth picking up for your Godzilla collection. Or if you like the ever-loving blue-eyed thing, uh, but don't go crazy to find it. Um, now, I actually do not have a physical copy of this. I've been trying to find one. Uh, I guess they, they put Devil Dinosaur on the cover and Godzilla inside, and people want ten bucks for it. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pay that. Uh, I'm paying less for that for my Silver Age issues Iron Man that I'm, that I'm picking up on the out of bins as I hunt for him. So I'm still on a lookout for a, a cheap copy of this one. Unfortunately, this has not been reprinted. You can get it on, uh, I believe you can get it on Marvel Unlimited, uh, the, the Marvel Digital Comics service. Uh, now the series actually ends a few months later at number uh, 36. I thought that was interesting. I thought that series ran longer than three years, but I guess a lot of the, or not a lot, but at least some of the stories in the thing actually were seeded in the later portions of Marvel 2 and 1, so maybe it just seems like they ran a little longer. Now, this is not the last appearance of Marvel Godzilla, but it's the last one we'll be covering for a little while. Uh, God Godzilla does appear again a few more times. He does pop up in uh, X-Men, uh, Uncanny X-Men, I should say, 506 and 507, where I believe he's mutated again. Uh, I have not read that story, and I don't have it, so I'm not going to be covering it at this time. And I know he made a cameo in, I want to say, Mighty Avengers number one as part of the, one of the monsters in the Mole Man's army. That was more of just a, a cameo. And the interesting thing about that, of course, is that it is the Heisei Godzilla that appears, not the mutated version, not even the Marvel version. Uh, but that was more done as an Easter egg than anything else, so... So we are not done with Marvel Comics. We've got a couple more that we're going to get to. But uh, for right now, we are going to be 
taking putting Godzilla, uh, Marvel Godzilla, um, giving him a little break. Maybe we'll cover those X Men issues in the future, but for right now, we're we're going to be moving on to some other characters. So, what did you guys think? Did you like this issue? Have you read it? Do you like the thing? Do you like Jack Kirby? <laughs> Do you like Devil Dinosaur? Uh, did you think it was fun that once again, a member of the Fantastic Four was on a movie set? That's like a recurring motif with the Fantastic Four, uh, despite the troubles that their movies have had, their actual movies here in the real world have had over the years. So right, right in. Let me know what you think. Artdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. Uh, as I said, I have a digital copy of this, so I can't go over the bullpen bulletins or soapbox or letters pages or the ads, unfortunately. So uh, it's a little bit shorter than usual comics coverage, but hope you all enjoyed it. I enjoyed reading it, as I said, it, even if it's not what we might call a crucial appearance of Marvel Godzilla. All right, we are going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back to finish up the show here on Earth Destruction Directive. Star Trek. Comic books. Mythology video games, toys, Star Wars, just about any geeky topic you can think of could be covered on the Hammer Podcast, presented by two true freaks. Come join me, Gene Hendricks, for whatever my disjointed mental processes can come up with, and be careful or you might just learn something before we're done. The Hammer Podcast is available monthly, both on its own iTunes feed and at twotruefreaks.com. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. And now it is time for my favorite portion of the show, a listener feedback if you would like to get in touch with the show, you can always email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com, or you can get in touch with me on social media. Just listen to the outro, and that'll have all the information you need. So our first email comes from Jack Bond, and it is entitled, Is It Jaws? And I would say that's the wrong show, but uh, he says, Hey, Gamera versus Zegra, I've seen that, so he's right on point. Jack continues, I'm a bit light on the Gamera mythology. I've only seen the first one, Mistied. And since I know the words to the Gamera song, I must have seen some other MST3K episode, but I don't know which. But I'm not afraid to show my ignorance. I was under the impression that the moon base at the beginning was like a James Bond opening and would have no bearing on the rest of the movie. So it was a welcome surprise when it came back and also tied up that weird comedy beat of people thinking they recognized the Zekrin woman. Yeah, I agree. That, that really, I'd forgotten about that too, that plot point. And I, I think that was well done. In a film that's uh, not always uh, has the best attention to detail, I do like that part. Jack continues. Yeah, the future looks a lot like 1971, but now I'm thinking, it's seen from the viewpoint of children. If I'd watched it in 1971, it wouldn't seem too far from my own experience. Or what my experience would be if I lived near a beach and had flying saber-toothed turtles fighting alien invaders. Would children watching in the far-flung future of 1985 or... 1987, if that's when it came to the States, see it as any different from their lives? By the time we have a moon base, there will be other changes. Self-driving cars and a more instantaneous connection to any person or service on the planet are likely. But how much of this would be accessible to children? That's a good point, Jack. You know, it's uh, it's always hard to depict the, fu- the, the near future because you want to have some 
elements, but you don't that are fantastical or science fiction, but you don't want to go crazy with it. But the odd thing about it, like you say, from the eyes of children, is that things that you know were revolutionary to me, my kids take as commonplace. You know, DVD is a great example. The idea of a movie on a disc, a movie on a disc no bigger than a CD, uh, was. That, that, that kind of blew my mind growing up in the VHS era, but to my kids, yeah, that's always been that. So kids acclimate pretty well to this stuff if it's what they're used to, you know. So I, I can see your point with that. Uh, Jack continues, I'm not used to Gamera, so I was jolted awake during his Zegra encounter when flames burst across the screen. With Godzilla's animated beam, it's sometimes hard to be mindful that he is breathing the fires of radiation and see it as, see it as impressive as that should be. Seeing actual fire was exciting. And of course, much admiration to the actor who would climb into a couple hundred pounds of awkward rubber suit that incorporates a flamethrower. Yeah, amen to that. Jeez. About the Gamera suit, my problem with it is that when he is on two legs. Seen from the front, it's obvious they've cheated placing the leg holes in the shell. Maybe two costumes, one with more freedom of movement for crawling and walking upright, but filmed from the back. One for being filmed from the front with the shell ending at the knees. What am I thinking? Toho was piecing together parts for Godzilla costumes to get one suit. Still not a wholly unentertaining film. You say it will get better if I go backwards through the saga? Signed, Jack. Um, first off, yeah, Dai couldn't, could not afford multiple, multiple suits. That they afforded a prop and a suit for Zegra is really telling. And, uh, that Zegra suit does not hold up very well, in my opinion. So it's, uh, uh, yeah, the budgets were were beyond tight for Dai at this point. Obviously, we talked about kind of the, the fallout from the bankruptcy of the studio in the last episode. Um, you say, will it get better if I go backwards? That's kind of an odd thing because Gamera peaks in the middle. Gamera versus Gauss is the best film in the series. Um, and I really like Gamera versus Barragan with well, War of the Monsters, which is the second one. And then Gamera versus Jiger is, is, is pretty good too. But there's, you know, but... Um, so it goes up and down, you know, there's, uh, um, you know, um, to me, Guren is, is bonkers, crazy, go nuts, but it's kind of a lesser entry. Virus, I personally like the monster Virus, but it's a lesser entry. The original is not as good as the ones that follow it. So it's kind of up and down. The thing about Gamera is that there's only a handful of movies that we're talking about here. So you could pound out the Gamera series in, in a day. The, the show of Gamera's and just really sit down and watch them all. It's not like the Godzilla's where there's there's you know, a lot more of them and some of them do take a little bit of time to digest. The Gamera ones, you could you could marathon them out pretty easy. You know, I'd say just you know, find a monster that looks interesting and go for it. I mean, there, there's no there's little to no continuity other than really the um, from the first one into the second one, and that's really only at the beginning. Um, you just find something that looks interesting and go for it. I, I mean, they're all, they're all entertaining in their own way. Obviously some are better than others. Uh, but it's, it's, yeah, it, it, it's very, it's, it's an up and down series is the best way to put it. Now, Jack also includes a PS here that I want to get into because this is fascinating. And I, I applaud Jack as a listener for taking this much, um, from one comment that I said and, doing a lot of research and work, and I really do appreciate it, so I want to give him his due here. He says, P.S., the ship does not transform into Zegra? Somehow I got that idea, and it intrigues me to think of it not as a mechanical transformer or even a biological metamorphosis like Hedra, but a mathematical transformation of coordinates such that Zegra's head on the inside of the ship becomes his head on the outside of his body. 
If this were a conversation, someone would invoke the magic phrase about putting more thought into it than the people who made it, and we could stop there. Alas, I had a long weekend and stole a few minutes to explore what that could look like, so I'm going to inflict it on you. Now, uh, Jack has included diagrams that I will I will do my best to upload to the Facebook and uh, link into the Twitter so you all can see what he is talking about here. He says, Zegra out is a rough outline of Zegra in a circle representing basically the ship. Sorry, I also missed the part where Zegra will expand in Earth's oceans because 20 million miles to Earth is still an influence on Daikaiju. Inside the circle is a reflection of Zegra when he is inside and the ship is on the outside. The inside of Zegra right now should be reflection of the ship. But if we were inside Zegra, we would have other things in our mind. It somehow came out bluer than I expected, and the dark blue shape in the middle is everything outside the rectangle of the drawing. This, this may be a little hard to follow because he's talking about colors and stuff. But, um, so, uh, okay, I should have been problem with your own. It's, it's a more interesting shape than the movie Circular Set, but the Zegra head on the set has no swordfish nose, having more of a hammerhead shape. Maybe a transformation that leaves more of the nose out to form the prow of the ship, and a portion of the pectoral fins to form the wings, and the dorsal fins, not really shown here, out to provide more room inside. At this point, I realized I, in fact, was putting more thought into this than the people who made it. Still, a few thoughts that came up while doing this is that is the top of the ship that looks like candy really fish guts? You know, I that's as that's a an, um, that's a better explanation than I can than I could come up with because yeah, why does it look like a bowl of candy if it's alien fish guts that are on the outside because he's gonna turn inside like you know uh, like a pair of socks? You know, you tuck cuff socks together and then I mean, my mom got mad at me for doing that. I was, oh, you're gonna stretch them out, but that's only I keep them out. Um, so maybe that is fish guts. I could, I could see that. Uh, Jack continues, you will see a man turned inside out while he is still alive, was the newspaper promise for some movie. An internet search shows it was Screamers. I haven't thought about that since I didn't get to see it in 1979. Actually, Zegra may be turned inside out down to the submolecular level. His surface is actually the force that binds an atom together brought to the macro world. No, I don't know what that means. I'm just saying words. Well, Jack, that, that's my whole shtick here is I just say words and record them and slap some stuff together and by God, it, I have fun doing it. So this, this, this is incredible. Like I said, that it could Zegra in fact be a, a literal mathematical translation, uh, to change from the ship to the alien. I, I, I'm downright flabbergasted by this because it is so creative. And such a great way to think about this and such an outside-the-box way to think about this, a solution to this problem. And I'm, I'm really impressed, Jack. Thank you so much for saying this. And like I said, I'm going to get these images up on the Facebook and link them on the Twitter so that everybody can see Jack's work. Because uh, he says it's really rough, but it's like this is, this, is, this is great stuff. It's a lot of fun. So thank you very much for writing in, Jack. Our second email is uh, entitled Gamera versus Jaws or Zegra. And that comes from Nathan Marchand. And Nathan writes, Hey Luke, since my intrepid producer, Jimmy from NASA, Jimmy, Jimmy, miraculous survivor of the infamous Born Space, wrote you in the last episode, I figured I should too. Gamera vs. Zegra is not good. I didn't see it until within the last year, somehow missing its episode on MST3K, which I've also now seen. Even by Showa Gamera standards, it's laughably bad. 
The child actors seem disinterested in what they're doing, the script is a pile of disconnected and unoriginal ideas, and things like the destruction of Tokyo are hardly given lip service. I will confess I knew nothing of the bikini girl going into it, and at first thought it made this an exploitation film for children and an excuse by the filmmakers to have gorgeous women running around in a swimsuit, until I realized that the villainous's paralyzing stare required eye contact. Walking around in a bikini where people don't usually wear them would have all eyes on her. I have no idea if the stroke of genius was intentional on the filmmaker's part or not. Uh, I'm good with it. Uh, you know what? I am, uh, you know, I am always okay with bikini girls in our uh, Daikaiju films and Daikaiju comics. So I'm okay with that. And yes, I'm going to say that that was intentional so that everyone looked at her and uh, got everyone's attention so she could hypnotize them. Good job, Nathan. Nathan continues, there needs to be a fan edit of this film where John Williams' Jaws theme plays whenever Zegra swims around underwater. That might give it some class. John Williams classes up everything, so I'm on board with that. Uh, you know, another podcast I listen to, they do what's called the Centerfield Project, where they uh, they uh, dub in the song Centerfield at inopportune moments in other films. I think you could do it with the Jaws theme. I think it works. Uh, Nathan continues, regardless, I think we can all agree it's still better than Gamera Super Monster. Or is it Super Monster Gamera? I don't know and don't care. Keep up the good work. I'd love for you to pay me a visit in Monster Island sometime to talk all things kaiju. Sincerely, Nathan Marchand, host slash curator of the Monster Island Film Vault. Nathan, thank you very much for writing in. I'm glad you were able to get a line out to me from Monster Island. Uh, I will uh, have to hook up with... Uh, I'll talk to the Demonzo lawyers and see what we can do about that. I know that um, that Demonzo has issues sometimes with us traveling to certain jurisdictions because of uh, he said the the unpleasantness is what he act the term he used. So I'm not sure what that entails. In fact, uh, I don't know that I would be able to tell you even if I did. To be honest with you, because of the contract that I signed. But in any event, uh, yeah, I'd love to. We'd I'd love to come visit you on Monster Island. Or maybe we can get you a satellite uplink and you can uh, visit us here at the Earth Destruction Directive. Thank you for your thoughts on Gamma vs. Zebra. I agree. We definitely need a Jaws edit of Gamma vs. Zebra. It would liven things up. Uh, so social media for our last episode, we got likes, shares, and retweets from Nathan Marchand and his partner Jimmy from NASA. Together they are the Monster Island Film Vault. Also, Kyoye Toshi, and uh, she's a... a, a I love her Twitter. I'm sure I'm butchering your name. I'm so sorry. Kyoye. I think I'm saying that right. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm not. Also, Xenozoic Xenophiles, Lomax, Billy D, my brother Jason Giaconetti, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, the Fanholes podcast, Bill Jordan, Professor Allen from the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, The Telltale Mind, David Asanowitz, Eric Taylor, Comics in the Golden Age, Bob Hansen, Adam Tebow, Chuck Rodriguez, Derek W. Crab, Derek W.C., Gene Hendricks, John Vanover, Robert Ward, Tim Elliott, Christopher J. Warden, Brian Severe, Logan Garrett, David A. Pascarella, and David Croson. Thank you very much for your social media love. That really helps the word of the show get out there. I appreciate it very much. Thank you, everybody. So now we come to the time in the show when it's we have to ask ourselves what comes next. We're always in our society, looking forward and not backward. Even when we're looking backward, we're still looking forward. So next time in Earth Destruction Directive, we are going back into Godzilla, but not in the way you might think. We are taking a look at Godzilla Planet of Monsters, the first 
of the Netflix anime trilogy. I am finally getting to this. I know I've been promising it for a while, but, uh, you know, finally just got it on the schedule and said, the heck with it, we're going to do it. In addition to Planet of the Monsters, we're also going to be taking a look at our next Marvel comic, uh, which is going to be Solo Avengers number 15, which actually has a story featuring the wonderful Winsome Wasp and Red Ronin. So I'm very interested in seeing this. Uh, we haven't seen Red Ronin, of course, since that uh, two-parter in Avengers, leading up to Avengers 200. So I'm very interested to see that. Uh, I've got a lot of love for the Wasp. Uh, I've, I've liked her for... I was always a fan of the Wasp um, from when I read the original Avengers in the Showcase Presents. Um, you know, even though she's kind of flighty and goofy. No pun on flighty. Uh, but I've really come to like the Wasp over the last couple of years, what Dan Slott has been doing with her in the pages of Tony Stark Iron Man. And I'm very eager to read that story and uh, see how just how, uh, you know, Wasp, who you think of as really small, deals with Red Ronan, who, of course, is really big. So that should be a lot of fun. Of course, any new news on Godzilla vs. Kong or anything else coming down the pike, I'll uh, be sure to let you guys know about that. And, uh, of course, uh, your emails and feedback will, of course, have that, too. So if uh, you've got anything you need you need or want to share, please go ahead and email me or destructiondirective at yahoo.com. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. So um, thank you, everybody, for listening. Hope everyone enjoyed the show. Uh, I want to take a moment and say, of course, that Earth Destruction Directive is for everyone. All are welcome here on Earth Destruction Directive. Thank you again for your download. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. Come back next time for Planet of the Monsters and Solo Avengers with the Wasp and Red Ronin. And until next time, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Jackanetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on, and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF <laughs> moment if I ever saw one. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.